You're listening to the Matheson Private Client Podcast, presented by Porik Madigan, Head of the Private Client Department at Matheson, with Joe Bischel, Partner in the Financial Institutions Group and Head of the Regulatory Risk Management and Compliance Team, and Lydia McCormack, Senior Associate of the Private Client Group. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Porik Madigan. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening to our briefing on the assisted decision-making legislation. I'm the head of private client in, in Matheson, and with me this evening are uh, Joe Bischel and Lydia McCormack, who are going to share their views on, on, on this topic. Just so you have some expectation of what you can expect, our presentation this evening is broken into three parts. It's going to start with a, an overview of the legislation. It's then going to move into a, a more open discussion on some recent and continuing developments concerning the legislation. And we're then going to conclude by focusing on the operational change that the Act is going to require for everybody who uh, has some responsibility, either pursuant to the Act or because of the businesses um, which uh, you as representatives of financial institutions are engaged in. And, and that's broadly the, the format for the afternoon. As you all know, the Act was passed into law in 2015. Its provisions have not yet been commenced. However, there have been some significant political developments in the course of this year because the Dáil voted on a resolution in March of this year which enabled the government through the Minister for Foreign Affairs to ratify the UN Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So we had the Dáil vote in March and the proceedings then, the ratification proceedings were concluded by mid-April of this year. There is uh, a significant groundswell, I think, of pressure for the legislation to be commenced in the early part of next year. And I think it's likely that if commencement isn't taking place in the early part of next year, the government is likely to face some significant criticism from particularly advocates who've been speaking about the, the importance of getting its provisions up and running. So at this stage, I'm going to hand over to Lydia, who's going to take us through the principles of the Act at a high level. And um, there's a set of slides available to everybody in front of you, which will be broadly used for the run-through that we're doing. So over to you, Lydia. Thanks. So I suppose for the, the purpose of this presentation, we're kind of focusing on what's relevant for, for you, for financial professionals. And I think... You know, there's about kind of four things that are really key changes. One is there's going to be a change to the capacity test. So if you've got a customer or a client, you will now have to assess them for capacity in a new way. And I'll, I'll discuss that later. You'll also have to deal with relevant persons. So these are persons with capacity issues as defined under the legislation, and you'll need to consider how you do that. You'll need to deal with interveners. So these are effectively trusted people appointed by relevant persons to assist them make decisions. And you need to consider how you're going to deal with those interveners and how you're going to deal with the decision-making intervention options and the, the arrangements that need to be put in place in relation to that, how you're going to provide for those. And really, this is all to, like the Act is, it's empowering legislation. The idea is that 
It's to give greater decision-making autonomy to people with capacity issues. So the idea is if you have a client who does have capacity issues, that really by virtue of the Act and the assistance under the Act, they will actually be able to make potentially more decisions for themselves than they would have at the pre in the present case. There's also going to be a statutory code specifically for financial professionals. And we're going to discuss that um, later on as well. So the big thing is this, this change to the capacity test. So at the moment, we pretty much have an all or nothing test. You either have capacity or you don't. But it's, it's not nuanced. Now you're going to have a functional test for capacity, which will assess really, can the person make the decision now in relation to this matter? So you will have to assess your client's decision-making ability relative to what has been done. And the functional test is really whether the person understands at the time the decision is to be made, the nature and the consequence of the decision to be made in the context of available choices at the time. So it's very much a, a time and issue specific test just because somebody had capacity last week doesn't necessarily mean they have capacity this week to make that decision. The person doesn't need to understand all of the details relevant to the decision they need to understand the salient points in order to make that decision. So when you're considering who you should apply the functional test to, I suppose under common law, it's been established that there is a presumption of capacity. And this is really putting that on a statutory footing. So irrespective of whether somebody presents to you and they have a lifelong condition or an intellectual disability, or they have acquired some kind of condition, you still have to start with the presumption that they have capacity and then you move on to assess whether they could be a relevant person. But the initial point is, initial starting point is a presumption of capacity. But then if that person indicates that their capacity could be in question or may shortly be in question, or that they lack capacity in respect of some other matter, then they're considered a relevant person under the legislation. So then you're basically, you're dealing with somebody who has, who has capacity issues, and then you need to apply the functional test when you're taking instructions from them to determine, do they actually have capacity to instruct me and to make this decision? And it's very important, and I'll probably harp on about this throughout, that re you know, record keeping in this regard is really important. You need to keep records to show you complied with the Act, you followed the functional test appropriately, and you've recorded how you did that appropriately, and that appropriate language is used as well, because obviously, you know, we're dealing with vulnerable people here and that the language is, is very important just to, to not be discriminatory. So there's kind of four things that people need to show in order to, to have capacity to make a decision. So they need to be able to understand the information. They need to be able to retain the information long enough to make a decision. So again, if they have a very um, short-term memory, that could inhib uh, impact on their ability to make a decision. Though the courts seem to, in case law, seem to really try to facilitate people making decisions. So even if it's short term, provided they have enough time to process the information and make the decision, it could be sufficient. They need to use or weigh up that information in their decision making. And they need to be able to communicate that decision. And again, like communication is, is very flexible under the Act. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be orally or in written form. If they can communicate it in some way, then that's coherent, then that may suffice. So they must have capacity to make the decision but they could have capacity to make certain decisions and not others. So you might have a client who, you know, their capacity is beginning to diminish. Certain things they understand and certain things they don't. So they understand how to open a bank account, for example, where the risk is probably minimal. But they don't have the capacity to take on a credit facility. They don't understand the implications or the consequences of the risk in that. So it's, it's very much issue-specific and time-specific. So the Act is, you know, very far-reaching in that it has now introduced 
a whole range of decision-making intervention options. And again, it's really to try and facilitate people who have not lost capacity altogether, but who have diminishing capacity and they need a bit of help to make more decisions for themselves. So this is really, these intervention options allow people with capacity issues to appoint persons to assist them make decisions. And I'll go through the varying options. The level of support they need will depend on the level of capacity that they have. So we'll go through the different steps. But first, I suppose, just to, to discuss, anyone to set out who an intervener is, because these are the people who will be, who some of these principles will apply to. So under the Act, an intervener is the circuit court or the high court, a decision-making assistant, a decision-making representative, a co-decision maker, an attorney, a designated healthcare representative, the director of decision support services, who is currently Owen Flynn, a special visitor or general visitor or a healthcare professional. We're going to discuss actually the classification of intervener later on in this talk. So going back to the hierarchy of decision-making intervention options, so one is you've no assistance. So you have a client or customer who presents, they want to make a decision, you're concerned, they, they may have a capacity issue, but they don't have any arrangement in place. And by and large, this is going to be the most common arrangement you'll probably come across until the act becomes familiar and people actually start putting these arrangements into place, which will you know, really necessitate some kind of publicity drive, I think, for people, for people to even become aware that they can put these arrangements in place. So you've got somebody who's they've no assistance, they have capacity issues, it'll be up to you when taking instruction to assess that person to say, well, under the functional test, am I confident and satisfied that this person has capacity? And you'll need to show and to, to record how you have followed the, the, the functional test and given this person an opportunity to make decisions. Because again, you know, in line with the spirit of the act, the idea is to try to facilitate people. So from a financial professional's point of view, it obviously offers you the least comfort because the onus is completely on you to assess their capacity. Then there's the decision-making assistant agreement. So that's the next stage. So this is going to be a formal agreement. It'll be uh, prescribed by regulation. We've yet to see it, but it'll be executed by the relevant person and their assistant. By and large, like I expect that this arrangement is going to mirror what we see a lot, which is somebody comes in, they may be elderly, they kind of have, have potentially some capacity issues, and their child comes in with them and the child their daughter or son, helps explain the product they want to buy or what they're engaging in and communicate with them in a way that they understand. And then the parent makes the decision. And this is kind of really documenting that arrangement. The decision still has to be made by the relevant person. So if you're taking instructions, you need to be satisfied that it is the relevant person that you're getting the instructions from, not the son or daughter, and that they have capacity to make that decision. Son and daughter can communicate it to them and give them a little bit of explanation advice, but really the decision has to be theirs. So you still have to be satisfied that ultimately they have capacity to make that decision. And I think what will represent, what will be a big shift is that, you know, this arrangement now, the very fact that they are now legislating for this arrangement and saying it needs to be documented would imply that it's no longer going to be kind of good enough for these arrangements to go on on a casual basis. So if you do have clients coming in and they are very reliant on a child to help them make decisions Really, you know, we should be asking them to go and put one of these agreements in place so that you can rely on the fact that, well, they did have this assistant with them and they were involved in the decision making, albeit the ultimate decision was made by the relevant person. And I think, you know, people are going to be kind of probably taken aback at the need to have to do that to, to put something formal in place. 
A co-decision-making agreement then is in the next step. So this is really, the person has less capacity and they actually, they can't make the decision even with the assistance of an assistant. They actually have to jointly make the decision with somebody. So there, in that case, you have a, a joint decision-maker and the decision is ultimately deemed to be made jointly by them. I think this offers more comfort for financial professionals because there is somebody who's actually, you know, who has full capacity, who is jointly making the decision with them. The Law Society, we know, have lobbied the Department of Justice to see confirmation that for purchasers for value, if you're buying, let's say, a house from somebody who has capacity issues and has a co-decision maker making arrangement in place, that you can rely on that and you're protected by it. And I think that that, you know, there, there hasn't been a response yet to that, but I think it, you know, that that would be what's probably envisaged that there should be some reliance on if an agreement is made by a co-decision maker with someone who has capacity issues that it can be relied upon. There's also a concern though equally that if somebody puts the co-decision making agreement in relation to their financial matters, does that mean then that the co-decision maker has to make decisions jointly for every single banking transaction that they make? You know, that's a practical worry that people have and I think that will come down to probably how, how the agreement is prescribed for in regulation and to what extent every decision has to be jointly made. And then the next level is an enduring power of attorney. So probably you're all fairly familiar with that. It's not going to materially change under the new act. There'll be a lot more checks and balances and attorneys will have, you know, I think thankfully there'll be more, more checks and balances in relation to how attorneys act under EPAs. But other than that, from your perspective, it won't materially change. This is really where somebody has kind of lost capacity to make decisions. So it could be... <coughs> The EPA might cover all financial decisions and this will then mean that really they don't have capacity to make any, any decisions in relation to their finances, for example. Or it might be more specific, but let's broadly say it'll be financial. And in that case then, this offers great protection for, or a lot of comfort for financial professionals because instead of, you're not actually dealing with the relevant person, you're dealing with the attorney who's been appointed on their behalf, the EPA has been registered and they can act as agent for that relevant person and you can take instruction from them so that's obviously quite clear and there's less risk involved for the financial professionals. If somebody doesn't have an EPA, previously they would have potentially been made a ward of court. But the ward of court system is going to be done away with. So there's two, I suppose, things that may happen. A decision-making order may be put in place. So this is really where the court realises a decision has to be made and just issues an order and makes the decision. So if it's something very clear-cut, probably like the person's house needs to be sold, so they go into a nursing home the court could just make that decision and order the sale of the house. Equally, they might appoint a decision-making representative and that representative will act similarly to an attorney under an EPA. They'll be able to make certain decisions on behalf of the relevant person. And again, these are in instances really where the person doesn't have capacity to make those decisions. And then lastly, I suppose, the wards of court. So as I said, it's going to be done away with. So once the act is commenced, the wards of court office will have about three years to review all of the wards and assess them based on the functional tests. So the wards of court office use the status approach at the moment, which is basically you either have capacity or you don't, and it's black or white. Now they're going to have to assess each ward as to their level of capacity. And it's thought that quite a few wards will have some level of capacity. And as such, then they will either be made, either a co-decision-making agreement will be put in place with them, or maybe a decision-making representative will be appointed on their behalf if they don't have capacity. But if for, for institutions holding assets on behalf of wards of court, that will actually, you know, obviously be a big shift. You'll need to consider, I suppose, you know, the accounts that are held in the wards of court and whether they're going to go back 
effectively into the names of the relevant persons and how that's going to all be managed has yet to be seen. That'll be quite a big, big task anyway to be undertaken and they've just three years to do it. Thanks, Lydia. I think finishing with the, the reference to the wards of court system is a reminder again how material and significant a change the assisted decision-making legislation actually is. It moves Ireland from a position where we were very poor and arguably still are until the legislation has commenced in making provision for, for people who have capacity issues into a, a regime which is much more flexible and nuanced. And because it is empowering for, for individuals, inevitably it's going to create a lot of issues for us. We're looking at this as private client lawyers because we will be working with uh, our individual clients and assisting them to make arrangements to have the relevant supports in place. And it's also, we think, very relevant for individuals dealing with individual clients being financial institutions. Uh, and that's where most of our focus is this evening. Now, we're now going to go on and, and talk about some of the developments that are continuing. And I know many people in the room will be aware of elements of these, so apologies if we're covering some ground that, that people are aware of. But one of the most significant elements here is the codes of practice which are being worked on at the moment. And Lydia, can you explain what's happening in that regard and um, where you think it's moving to? Yes, yeah, so under the Act, there's going to be 11 non-healthcare codes, and these are being drafted by the National Disability Authority. These will be statutory codes. So the National Disability Authority, or the NDA, are drafting this one code for financial professionals, and they have a technical group of experts who feed in and give their input and commentary on the codes. And they've also had, I think, roundtable discussions with interested parties who are going to be affected by the codes, and perhaps some of you here may have been involved in those and they're taking the, their feedback into the draft of the codes. I know that the NDA and the Department of Justice have been liaising in relation to the code, and the NDA has put kind of earlier drafts to the Department of Justice for consideration. It was hoped that the central bank would be, you know, be quite involved in the draft of the code because, you know, from the NDA's perspective, I suppose this is, is, is a code for financial professionals, and they felt that the central bank would be a good place to advise. But as I understand it, the central bank hasn't been directly involved, but it, it has said that it would look at the output of the expert technical groups and give their feedback in that respect. It is expected that the codes will be finalised by the end of the year and then they'll be put. So once the NDA has finalised them, they'll be put to the Director of Decision Support Services on Flynn and then they'll be put out for public consultation. I suppose, you know, a point to note is, like, I've used this term financial professionals a lot already. And where I'm getting that term from is it's in the Act. It's the only reference to kind of people who work in the financial sector. But there's no actual definition provided in the Act. We have been in touch with the NDA in relation to this. And their view in recent correspondence to us was that this term covers all persons who carry out the business of providing one or more financial services and it applies to all individuals and entities operating in the state or providing service to people in the state. In the state, So all individuals and entities providing any financial service. So it's very broad, the term. But yet there will just be one code for the catch-all of all financial professionals. So it's really expected that the code actually will be, although it had hoped it would be quite practical, I think it's going to be really very high level. 
by virtue of the fact that it just has to apply to so many different entities, including those that have to deal with the Consumer Protection Code and those that are not covered by the code. So it will actually be quite, um, I think it's, it, it'll be very broad and high level. So how does the issue of interveners come up in this context? Because we saw earlier that the parties defined as interveners in the Act are really the people who are directly supporting a relevant person either in making their decisions or in, in a healthcare context? Yeah, they, if at the moment under the under the legislation, financial professionals and legal professionals are not considered an interveners. And I suppose, it, you know, as I get on to, I think that, that there's the interveners are those who are expected really to be assisting somebody make decisions, like a decision-making assistant degree or a co-decision maker. Financial professionals, legal professionals, when the act was legislated, it wasn't envisaged that they would be included in this category. But the uh, National Disability Authority has referred to the Department of Justice and actually, in effect, lobbied them that financial professionals would be included in the term of interveners, which is really quite a, a significant move and would, would have significant consequences, I suppose, if, if, if the legislation is changed to include financial professionals as interveners. And in recent correspondence, the NDA have confirmed that this is currently being looked at by the Department of Justice. Also, I think, you know, I've gone to a lot of talks on this and, and read quite a bit of commentary. And there is a tendency to imply that financial professionals and, and legal professionals and a lot of service providers are interveners and that the principles applying to interveners apply to almost any service provider. So I think that, that that has been a tendency throughout and now the NDA are actually trying to uh, really, you know, ha- have that put on a statutory footing. And maybe that's a good point to ask you, Joe, to comment on this view of the NDA and what implications it might have if the law were to be changed. Ironically, it would be surprising if the law were to be changed before it's actually commenced. But... Um, we understand there has been quite a firm push in that direction by by the NDA. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, um, you know, I come to this kind of topic with interest, if you know what I mean, because, as you know, I'm kind of the financial regulatory person. And I suppose our advice, or, or where we look for people or help people out, is, is really things like uh, operationalising kind of regulatory requirements, you know, policies and procedures. And, you know, there are kind of concepts out there, like there is, you know, for giving investment advice, you have to ensure that it's suitable. And that involves getting certain information in relation to the client, you know, whether they understand the nature of the investment, whether they have the financial capacity to, to bear it, whether they understand the risks, which are feels kind of analogous to some of this to this kind of stuff, if you like. But then there's other financial products which are quite the opposite, which is very much, you know, execution only, like here it is, you want it, you buy it, and if you don't want to buy it, that's fine, you just take it. And uh, you certainly wouldn't get involved and there wouldn't be any sort of relationship here. So the, uh, like it seems to me that the, uh, the idea that all financial professionals, like so all regulated firms and all individuals sort of interfacing with relevant persons would automatically be somehow deemed to be in this category, if you like, um, and, and sort of foist almost a fiduciary duty on them would be a major uh, step and a very significant departure from the way things are set up and the way firms are set up. And I can sort of see it in the kind of maybe, the, as I said, the sort of trusted advisor capacity where you are actually in that kind of advising them and there might be some space there, but not in the regular just buying a product. And as I said, even within the sort of uh, the current regulatory regime, 
it does recognise, you know, there are some simpler products where there's no statement of suitability required. There are some things, as I said, that are execution only. And then there are other things that are so complicated that you're not allowed to sell them as execution only. And the, the, so there is a hierarchy, like a financial product and the interventions that are required, if you like. And it's interesting to hear Lydia say that the central bank was kind of not that keen and really diving into it, if you like. And a funny thing I'd say their perspective will be, you know, that's the overall arching treating, you know, have to act in the best interest of customers, if you like. And that's the same language in MIFID for investment firms and the same language in the CPC. So I, I, I'd be quite certain that the central bank will look at this with interest, you know, perhaps comment in a way, but I'm not sure I could see them adapting the CPC to this, if you like. I'd say they have their CPC, they like it. As you know, there's a vulnerable consumer mentioned, albeit it doesn't say much about them, if, if you like, and there's not that many obligations attached to it. And I will say that they would just say, well, I don't really care about this, this legislation on one level. On another level, you know, we have our codes and we expect you to comply with them. I would see that a, a, a big challenge, if you like. In, I'm not sure, I mean, I think so many things wouldn't work, if you like, if everyone was an intervener, if you like, if, as I said, if everyone was kind of uh, deemed to have this type of fiduciary relationship. I think that would just make it quite, quite difficult uh, and, and quite impractical, if you like. Yeah, because I think some of the obligations on interveners, so these are set, these are guiding principles that they have to follow. And I think, you know, there's a few of them that probably under common law, uh, you know, are established already, like like presumption of capacity and that somebody, I suppose, be at liberty to make their own mistakes. But there's other obligations which really are very far reaching and would certainly imply that you really need to know your client and have a very good relationship with them and, and does put kind of a fiduciary obligation on you. Um, like you need to understand their will and preferences and their values and beliefs and you need to kind of take all measures really to, to facilitate them making a decision. So if you have somebody before you who wants to, you know, you're, you're trying to take instruction from them, you know, the, the efforts and steps you need to take to ensure that they, that they can make that decision is, goes far and above what, you know, what you'd be expected ordinarily to do. And I think it's, it's, very, it's just a very hard test to ask of this big group of financial professionals, which covers, you know, everyone and, and covers a whole variety of different client relationships where you may not know your client, you may have very little interaction with them. And yet then you have this obligation to try to facilitate their will and preferences. Like it's, so it's very part of the purpose of today is it was part of the purpose of today is kind of to um to flag the lobbying, if you like. And I was at a, a board meeting this morning, actually, for a client, and we were talking about the sort of the central bank's sort of a new kind of fitness and probity regime they want to copy from the UK. And we were telling the client that what you need to do is you need to get in and lobby now before it turns into a proposal, because once things have the have a proposal, then some civil servant has a vested interest in the language and it's hard to get a change, if you like, if you can get it in now. So I think part of the development, if you like, that for the reason for today, because we had the other session in April really was, like it wouldn't be good for all of you, if you like, if this, if the NDA kind of proposal came into law, because it really is too blunt, too, like too much, in our view, regular financial services products, if you like, that are sort of common or garden would be caught up into this fiduciary and you'd have this special cohort of customer and uh, that you have these special duties for over and above everything. And, and we are like, what does that mean, right? So what, you might say. What it means, of course, is that if anything goes wrong, then, you know, it's an investment product and then there's a crash or whatever, like, just like the last crash, everybody, you know, all these sophisticated buyers who had 40 kind of investment properties suddenly said, oh, I was a consumer, I should have got the consumer documentation, I wouldn't have bought it had I got the consumer documentation. Now, with the ombudsman, that often didn't work, if you know what I mean, but it just opens up that whole kind of can of worms. And really the idea is, 
it's really to kind of socialise the point about maybe getting in there through industry bodies. And I know there's banks and, and, and investment firms here and so on to kind of uh, maybe make that point. And fair enough, I mean, you think as a citizen, it's clearly a very enlightened piece of legislation and I can, I, can, I totally get it. But in terms of implementing it, uh, I think it just needs to be, you know, balanced and recognising some realities. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, when Lydia and I were discussing this over the last few days, one of the points I was making is that, you know, anti-money laundering legislation, for example, has become very onerous on, on banks in particular, transmitting money, the result of which has been that some financial institutions decide it's too high risk to engage in transactions with certain third countries. Uh, that's clearly not what the intention of the legislation is, but it is an unfortunate consequence of the degree of risk that people are, are perceived to be um, held to and results then in, in, in people trying to ameliorate that risk, which is understandable. I'd like just to move on to a, I suppose, a related issue, and this concerns the Consumer Protection Code, which you've already referred to, Joe, and the Act, because there seems to be a potential mismatch, if I can put it in those terms, between the two. Where, Lydia, does this concern come from? Well, under the Act, when they were drafting the legislation, they considered using the term best interests so that they should consider the best interests of the, the relevant person. And that, that kind of language is used in, in the English legislation. But they felt that it was too paternalistic. And so instead, they've gone for will and preferences and values and beliefs. So you need to consider the will and preferences of the relevant person. But it's been, I suppose, identified that that creates a bit of a conflict then with when you're trying to adhere to the Consumer Protection Code, because it, it uses the term best interest and understand Joe that that's it's, it's, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's what's it's there. a bit of a mismatch it is a bit of a mismatch and like you know the, the MIFID which I mentioned MIFID like it's not relevant to everyone but it comes from, from the European side of things mm -hmm. the best interest of the customer is used there as well and, and the CPC aligns with it if you know what I mean so I suppose we, I don't know the answer to all the, all the questions like in this one because it, it, you know the idea then that you know people should be allowed to make a bad decision I think that makes sense because that's that should be the way it is if you know what I mean and there is the kind of what does the best interest to consumers mean and and I think I think some of it like firms do it on a, on a macro level that there are just some products they won't offer to that particular class of customer altogether they've just decided we just don't offer, offer those risks to those people like as part of that I, I just worry I suppose that kind of terminology will be used either by the relevant persons themselves or the representatives or the central bank or something to use it against institutions where a product has been sold, if you like. That, I think, the, the legislation is very deliberate in not using that phraseology. So somebody can, is allowed to make a bad decision, albeit that they are impaired uh, in some way, like, but still allowed to make it. But then you know, I, I just see the ombudsman's office kind of feeling sorry for them and, uh, in a way, you know, reversing the decision, if you like, notwithstanding that is kind of the construct, if you like. And funny enough, building on what Porrick just said, you know, I, I can see institutions really, you know, really stepping back and just not wanting to sort of take the risk and, and maybe, you know, not, not offering some products that people might otherwise be able to do. I'd say it's just, it's, it's you know, like I can see how, as I said, the kind of the different steps of decision-making and empowerment and so forth. On one level, provide a bit of transparency, but I can see people worrying and, and think, uh, how are they going to deal with this? And I said, my problem, in fact, that we see in life is how to operationalise this, how to proceduralise this, how do we deal with all this, how can I prove it? And the other side of the coin about uh, acting in the best interest of consumers, which is a slightly different take, is, you know, this legislation isn't in, I'm not expecting it to be in the list of prescribed legislation for prescribed contraventions where there can be an admin sanction if you breach it. 
However, I, I can see the central bank using the acting in the best interest of consumers against firms if, for example, they somehow stopped offering product to this class of customer altogether. So how can you be acting in the best interest of consumers when, for no good reason other than your administrative convenience, you're not offering it? Or similarly, in terms of the various different procedural steps that Lydia just outlined, you can't document them or you weren't able to document them and there's some issue. And then the central bank going, well, how can you be acting in the best interest of consumers if you didn't have robust procedures, you didn't have robust training, you didn't have a, a way of dealing with this particularly sensitive cohort of investors or, or, of investors or customers, if you like. So it's, it's a funny, like that old, uh, those general principles throw up kind of multiple, <laughs> multiple issues, if you know what I mean. I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I think you, know, you have to kind of work through them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just conscious as well that you know there there are a lot of advocates who are you know pressing the government to commence this legislation, which I think everybody agrees is a good thing to do. There's been a lot of media comment recently around a number of decisions of the president of the High Court concerning wardship applications. Uh, so there are advocates groups who are very firmly pressing for the greatest autonomy to be made available to, uh, to people who are relevant persons. If there is a potential conflict then between a relevant person having, with their supports, made what is arguably or could turn out to be a bad decision, and a financial institution is and a, or a, a financial advisor is considering the implications of selling a product or making an investment or a series of investments on foot of that decision, what are the potential implications under the Consumer Protection Code if that goes wrong or is perceived to have gone wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, um, I suppose, it put it another way, like when, when people do have full capacity and it goes wrong, what can happen? And then I think, you know, people will allege they were badly advised or it was the wrong product, wasn't suitable for them. And they, they point to the Consumer Protection Code Act in the best interest or where was the suitability statement. And they, they sort of query sort of the process to get there, the, anything to get out of it and to get back to where they were, if you know what I mean. Um, so that's kind of the way it is anyway, if you like. And I think in, in, in terms of this legislation, I think that's sort of all the more acute, if you like. And I think it's a particular dilemma, I think, and it really makes it all the more important then to really document how everybody got there, really have all the paperwork in place to be able to justify why we went ahead. Because I think the law does allow the person to make not a great decision, right? I mean, the law on the consumer protection side or the MIFID side is set up, you know, that, you know, if you're getting advice, it does have to be suitable. So there's already a protection on that side, you might call it paternalistic. Mm. Um, but there's certainly a paternalistic element that there are obligations on financial institutions. Uh, but some of them are not, some of them are execution only. A uh, person could come in and buy it. And I think, what I guess we don't know is how that might play out, if you like, whether the ombudsman, I think in the first instance, most likely, or the courts later on, or indeed the central bank, if you like, will really take the legislation to heart, which is allow people to make the, you know, a bad decision, if you like, or will they somehow themselves be paternalistic and somehow expect you know, sort of read into the best interests of the consumer language, read into some of the suitability type language and fitness, you know, the sort of uh, uh, reasons why letters, stuff that perhaps may or may not be there, but might just suit the, the, the fact pattern, if you like. And I think the only way to protect uh, yourselves from that is to 
really have the very good training, really have the very good procedures and really know exactly what you're doing with this particular cohort so that you, you know, the way it is nowadays, like, you know, if you can't prove it, you know, it didn't happen. Uh, if you can't prove it, you're wrong, if you like. So I think, you know, it, it, it'd be particularly important, as I said, to be able to document our arrangements. You know, we had the agreement, we saw the agreement or we had whatever, whatever step in the decision-making process it is, we, we did this. Maybe there's an extra step in your process where you unilaterally have a cooling off period or maybe come back come back again next day or next week if you want to think about it. Maybe that's worth it. I mean, it's probably worth, I think what you probably have to do is really actively think of this cohort of potential customers, clients, and think about, you know, does our normal process apply or do we really need to have a slightly different one? And how do we paper that? How do we proceduralize that? And how do we train people on that? Because I see the vulnerability, as I said, will be, as I said, perhaps well-meaning, probably paternalistic in, in, in that sense, mm. effort to do good by the relevant person, if you know what I mean, and put them back in circumstances where they were perfectly entitled and actually legally obliged and legally entitled to make a bad decision. But I just feel, you know, people will try and pick up the pieces. So the only way to protect yourself is, as I've said. Yeah, and I, th I think that is very important that it is documented because when under the Act, you know, the Act so allows somebody, you know, you can make an unwise decision. And again, it's all about, you know, to give more autonomy to people so that we're not paternalistic and saying, no, that that's not a wise decision. But equally, like when you get it, when you drill down into what does that mean, it's actually, you know, it's a fairly vague notion. So you have to, you have to determine, well, is this unwise because they actually don't have capacity and they just don't understand the decision or, or they understand elements of the decision, but they don't really understand the consequences of the decision? Or is it unwise because they have the capacity to make the decision, but they just want to make a bad decision. And so it's actually, it's not completely black and white either. So you, you really need to consider what, why they're making the decision. And, you know, and, and I think the only way you can protect yourself in that, in that instance is by very, you know, by ensuring that you've kind of followed a clear procedure and that it's documented, recorded. Okay, just a few minutes to wrap up. I think in response to one of the, the final questions we had there, you know, will there be training provided? I think not by external parties. Um, is probably the answer. Um, our sense from looking at the at the legislation um, is that you know every financial institution needs to understand the act and what it means, and it's then going to be important to consider you know the nature and range of the customer base that the business deals with, and the different degrees of complexity of the products or investment services or options that are provided and to build in an appropriate record generating and retaining system so that as and when there are you know queries and inevitably there will be queries that a financial institution is best placed to say well we took advice we looked across our product range and we looked at the profile of our customers, we identified the required standards under the Act, we have provided training to our staff, we have probably gone and identified a certain cohort of staff who will be specifically trained to deal with individuals who are identified as relevant persons and to build a record around that activity. On that note, it just remains for me to thank Lydia and Joe, who um, did most of the heavy lifting. Uh, thank you for your time and the way you've teased through a lot of the issues. There's clearly um, a lot more to do.
So thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Private Client Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email porrick.madigan at matheson.com or joe.bishow at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice.